My name is Susie Can, and I hope you enjoy exploring with me the thoughts that come with this thread. If you have any interest in supporting what I'm doing or getting in touch, please do so through the website kylak.ie, where you will also find other resources and connections that I create around each podcast so that if some of the tweaks of interest come to you through them, you have a place to go to go a little further and deeper or to find other information or to find a way to support by maybe wanting to collaborate or offer something or even a donation. Thanks for listening. As I explore human design systems in this thread, and it can connect to other threads about our ancestors and the land and how they live and their understanding, what I want to talk about in this episode is the bridging that we are doing as we reach what is described as late-stage capitalism and all of the effects of that in the Western world and all of the downstream effects of that in human lives and ecosystems across the world. In order to think about redesigning systems or looking for that way back to living more in balance and more in harmony with each other and with the land resource that is the living land and the living ecosystem of which we are part. I have been talking a bit about permaculture, and I want to layer onto that another framework that comes with the principles that I have been exploring also in recent years. Permaculture has these sets of principles that have been derived from the study and understanding of ecosystems. I've mentioned before about how that is still a worldview that sees us as apart from nature, but increasingly people who've used this bridge of permaculture understanding or study of ecology and applied ecology to human systems, I think are also finding their way back to that connection to those systems, not as separate. But for now, I'm going to illustrate some of the principles and then try to weave those in to how they work with distributed resource and fairness and justice in the world. Natural systems all over the planet have incredible resilience. Ecosystems that evolve underneath the ice flows, ecosystems that evolve in hyper-arid conditions, the extremes of temperature, the extremes of nutrition, the extremes of altitude and depth under the ocean, and the principles that Molson and Holgram looked at to see what was inherent in all these systems that gave them such resilience and also adaptation. Darwin had looked deeply into adaptation and had talked at length about the cooperation and the exchanges that were happening as species adapt. Mollison and Holgram talked about diversity as one of the founding principles of nature and essentially a kind of backup plan that is there within the system. A lot of what 
engineers might call built-in redundancy, so that there are many thousands of different kinds of flies, and many of them are involved in pollination. We tend to think of the honeybee as a pollinator because it is very tied to pollinating the plant species that we have become so intimately involved in in our agriculture and food systems. But there are many other species of bee and butterfly that also do pollination. So nature has a kind of a backup plan. We are particularly vulnerable in the resilience stakes because of reliance in less diversity. The distribution of resource, the distribution of skills, and the distribution of understanding of our world and how we can engage in that has become dramatically monoculture. Also, money-based wealth in smaller and smaller hands. So that huge disparity in wealth of the top, even less than 1% now, of money being accrued and hoarded rather than distributed across the system. Mollison, in fact, said that he saw great similarities between a big pile of fresh manure and a big pile of money. That if you left a big pile of fresh manure on soil, on ground, on grass, on vegetation, it would contaminate and pollute. And so the creatures in nature that are best at distributing all that nutrition would get really active really quickly and as much as possible would try to take this strong pile of pollutant and distribute it back out across the system. And of course, we know that that's a challenge when it comes to distributing money resource in the system. But what this brings me on to, all of the inputs and outputs that would normally happen in an ecosystem of distribution. So you have nutrition across the system, biomass across the system, life and diversity across the system. And everything is exchanging through an incredible web of connection. All of that distributed resource moves as inputs and outputs. So the needs of one part of the community of life are being fed by another part are being fed by another part, and so on. And these exchanges of shelter, for example, the moment you can see all the little birds in the spring dashing and hiding amongst the ivies and hedges for shelter and for finding a place to raise their young in safety. So there's this exchange of needs and exchange going on constantly. And what that is called in an ecosystem is a self-organizing system. And when humans try to imagine self-organizing systems amongst other humans, unless you've had an experience of that, unless your culture shows you what that kind of distribution could be experienced as, most of us have come through the command and control of resource and power in the late-stage capitalism world and in many other iterations of governing and governance ever since humans discovered agriculture about twelve to 14,000 years ago. Instead of that small village culture where many people had the same skills, many people had the same access to resource, and there were many exchanges of help for making shelter 
and so on. Ever since we needed to protect large areas of ground and cut down lots of trees in order to create grain-based agriculture, we've also had these evolved hierarchies where you think of literal pyramid schemes from the time of the pharaohs on and in the same in South America and the kinds of pyramids you find there and the kinds of empires and emperors that existed in Asia. So you have this hierarchy that's evolved as a means of conquering new ground because if you grow grain and you use up fertility, you need more land that has that fertility. So you have the Egyptians and the Greeks and the Romans constantly expanding, constantly deforesting and gobbling up more ground. And the same is true of what is talked about as ancient sunlight, where you have stored fossil fuel under the ground. So ancient trees and plants turned into this carbon-rich resource, which is also used in the world of industrial agriculture to completely fuel its energy, all of the horsepower that goes into the engines that drive the machinery, all of the petrochemicals that are used in herbicide and pesticide manufacture and actual substance. So it's not surprising that you have these big agricultural companies in a sort of pyramid of wealth across the world as well. So recently, my understanding that change can come from the community level. I've been sort of waiting and watching for signs of something that David Holgram wrote about when he was trying to understand systems theories. And what he talked about was if you do have a big pile of one kind of resource, so if there is a huge tree that suddenly drops all of its fruit, then as an ecological adaptive strategy, rushing in and grabbing and eating big piles of that fruit in a kind of abundance meal fest is ecologically adaptive. Most everybody is going to get some of the fruit. The big elephants might step in and get lots first, but all of the way down the ecosystem, there's so much of it, everybody's going to get what they need. In a human system, if you don't have a big pile of something, then one of the ecologically adaptive things that humans do in scarcity is actually distribute resource. That notion of let's grab lots of it, there seems to be lots of it, You could see in a property bubble, for example, those that have access to some wealth gathering more and grabbing what they can. But if you have tsunami, a snow event as a major weather event, or if you have other kinds of scarcity-induced situations, like the peak oil event that happened in Cuba in the 1990s with the collapse of the Soviet Union, And people in Cuba suddenly finding that their oil-fueled energy, their oil-fueled transport and their oil-fueled agriculture, they were heavily industrialized agriculture. They had adopted the so-called Green Revolution, which was using highly chemical agriculture, was gone almost overnight. And they had other geopolitical issues too, because America wouldn't let any ship that docked in Cuba dock in a US port for six months. And so you had scarcity. People start to innovate and adapt to that new condition. There's a teaching story that I love called Stone Soup. 
And it is a story of the very raggedy, wandering, nomadic person coming in apparent poverty into a village that is also struggling with resource. This ragamuffin, perhaps perceived as beggar person, comes into the village and the only thing they carry with them is a bag and in their bag, the only thing in there is a beautiful stone. So the wanderer arrives into the village, passes some of the villagers by, and as they pass, they ask, do you have any food to share for a wanderer like me? And from the first moment, the villagers shun the wanderer. They shake their heads, they hurry on, and they say, we are too poor here. We have nothing we could share with you. The wanderer passes on, knocks at some doors, always the same answer. The village is too poor, they have nothing they could share. They can barely feed themselves. As the wanderer comes to the edge of the village, he sees an old woman in her garden, and he doesn't ask for anything to eat, but he asks her, would she have a pot he could use to cook stone soup? She looks at him with suspicion, but her curiosity gets the better of her. And she says, what is stone soup? And he tells her that it is the most delicious, the most filling, the most bountiful soup in the world, and that he can make it because he's in possession of a magic stone, which he takes out of his bag and shows her. And it is a most beautiful stone. It has colored flecks and interesting shapes. And so the woman agrees and goes and gets a pot. He asks her when he sees it, have you anything bigger? And she said, well, there's an old cauldron that we used to use at one time. It might still be in the garden. If you clean it out, it's big and it's wrought iron and it should be strong. And so he looks in her garden and sure enough, planted up with some rather sad looking plants is an old cauldron. It's quite large. He spends the day going to a stream nearby, scrubbing out the cauldron with sand. And when he comes back, he's gathered enough firewood to begin to boil some water. He sets up his little fire and the big cauldron and the water in a very prominent position on the edge of the village. Passersby are noticing him, and a few have talked to the old woman, and they are curious. And so he takes his time building up the fire, stirring the water. And then when he sees that there is a bigger crowd that have begun to gather, he takes out the magical stone and with a great deal of flourish, plops it into the water. Now someone comes near and says, what will it taste like? And he begins to describe the most delicious soup that anyone has ever heard of. His little fire of sticks is beginning to die down, but somebody comes out from a store from behind their house and produces a little more wood. He thanks them, and he says, I will certainly share with you some of the soup when it is ready. Thank you for your gift. People are listening, and he says, mm, it would be a little bit better if only I had some herbs, but alack, no one here has anything to share. Someone scuffles on the edge of the crowd, disappears, and comes back with a bouquet of herbs from their garden. He says, oh, thank you so much. And he ties the bouquet 
with a little bit of string from his pocket and hangs it over the handle and into the pot. And he stirs and he sniffs. Ah, it's coming along nicely, he says. If only a few bones from a roast might help. Again, there's scuffling in the crowd. Someone else comes back. We killed our last cockerel and we've eaten most of it, but there are some bones here. Perhaps they would help. Again, he thinks them profusely. Continues, and the story of stone soup evolves. A few carrots, an onion might help. You know, just maybe five potatoes would bring this all together. And he continues, and he's got pinches of salt and other things, and, and people are smelling the soup, and they are saying, just smells amazing. Everyone is who's contributed has been offered that they will partake in the soup. And so now everyone in the village is finding a little something that they could add, some handfuls of barley, some cabbage leaves, and so on. Finally, this really large cauldron of soup is full and abundant and smelling amazing. And he tells everyone in the village to go and get a bowl and a spoon and if somebody could bring a large ladle, they would feast together. And sure enough, when they come with their bowl and their spoon, he and the whole village sit together in abundance, and they eat together all of the soup from the cauldron, exclaiming on how they haven't had such a delicious, such an abundant, such a diverse tasting meal in so long. And although that might seem like a fantasy teaching story. There are quite a lot of examples and studies and stories, narratives that people exchange around the world in the year that we have just been having of scarcity of various kinds. Many more when, as I say, disasters and floods and snow events, all sorts of things like this. People instinctively know that collaboration and shared decision-making are going to be the things that help them. There are amazing stories, if you seek them out, of exactly that kind of collaboration. So I want to introduce the idea that collaboration and decision-making that supports it can be done by design, and that there is a growing body of practice, this kind of governance and decision-making, that not only distributes the resource, like in the story of Stone Soup, but also uses a little bit of what anybody has to contribute so that the sum of all of those contributions is like the ama amazing, most delicious soup. And they involve various different methods, but the one that I've been getting familiar with, practicing in various places that I collaborate and beginning to introduce and teach, is a system called sociocracy. sociocracy is thought of as a whole systems approach. The origin of the word has to do with community, the social, the collaborative. It is a decision-making and also organizational way of working and way of taking action together. It enables a group of people to organize themselves in an organic whole because each part of the system has got a feedback and a connection deliberately designed in so that voices can be heard across the whole system and contributions can be made and resources can be distributed. 
it sort of mimics what you could see in a natural ecosystem with the inputs and outputs and the connections in the living creatures moving across the system. Like permaculture, sociocracy has an ethical values-based umbrella. The values are of equivalence, meaning that people are working together and functioning as peers in versions of assembly or assembling together to accomplish what they agree together are their collective aims. Another value is that things should be always improving. So self-improvement, group improvement, building in processes and policies and actions that are effective and continually checking on that and saying, how is this working for us? And how was that meeting? And what could go better? And then really important value that is under the ethical umbrella for this to work is a huge, high, high degree of transparency. So because there's communication designed in, because there's mechanisms for the whole system to know what every other part is doing, then also there's direct access to kind of all the documentation or all of the records that relate to what's going on. There are no secrets. And that is so vital to supporting this idea of equity, of equivalence, of the responsibility to co-lead rather than hierarchically lead the system to take on the responsibility as if every single person has the responsibility we traditionally in the new hierarchies we've all grown up with we think of as being the responsibility of just the leader. And there are around the world remnants of systems exactly like that. They don't have a new name like sociocracy, much as I talk about how permaculture still exists in some parts of the world under its old frameworks and not what we've had to rename it in order to try to bridge back to these kinds of processes. So there are countries, there are cultures that hold themselves to be as responsible even as their currently elected leaders. If a leader fails, they don't see themselves as having had a leadership failure. They have a whole feeling of collective responsibility for having put that person in charge. Like permaculture, sociocracy also has a set of principles. Actually, not as many as you find in permaculture, Holgram and Mollison had 10 to 16 principles in permaculture, which I've only touched on a little bit in these episodes. This is what we spend a lot of time teaching and exploring on our permaculture design courses. But in sociocracy, principles are about how the decisions are made and how the structure looks. And so the decisions are made by consent. And consent is different than consensus. Consensus is waiting until everybody agrees. Sometimes you could have consensus where everyone agrees or maybe everyone agrees. And if someone still isn't really agreeing, they might agree to disagree. So they'll, they'll go with the decision and say, yes, I agree to this decision. Consent, however, is slightly different. And it is something that can exist only when there are no remaining objections to a particular policy decision. And the objections have to be relevant to all the collective aims. So there's a work first to decide 
what is the aims of the group or the organization or the community. And then as people go about the implementation, if you like, of those goals, and there's different ways that happens, there could be objections about those ways, those methodologies, the policies, their kind of governing implementation. These are decision-making, governance-making moments that you could imagine as being on a on what we know like for committees or boards, governance and so on. But in sociocracy, the structure is very different. So I'm going to talk about that in a moment. Here, what I'm drawing out is that consent must exist to whatever is being discussed that's relevant to whom is discussing it in a policy way. So the word objection sounds, again, like people who might have just experienced different kinds of decision-making processes, including voting. They can sound like they're going to be blocks, so like a veto, like being able to say, I have the power to object and block whatever's happening here. How they're envisioned and how they work when a sociocratic system is working well and where people have learned it and maybe shed lots of the baggage of the kinds of systems they've come from, what starts is that objections become things to make the decision better, things that are sitting not right yet that make the decision better. And so if someone has an objection, they have to really explain it so that everyone that might be affected by this, even if they disagree with the objection, that they can explain and kind of broaden out a discussion again about what they're not sure of yet about the decision. And they basically are really, really asked for in the system. They're really facilitated out, they're solicited because of the kinds of valuable information that these reasoning can improve a proposal can include all of the members of the group that people can feel more efficient and effective when they're really truly behind something because they've understood these kind of parameters. So consent is a central principle of sociocracy. And then the other really key one is the structure that I'm beginning to talk about. And the structure of a sociocratic system is done by circles that are semi-autonomous circles, meaning they are the self-organizing unit. So earlier I was talking about nature is self-organizing. So this is kind of like that, where there's a self-organizing group, and that group in the circle will have had its particular domain and aim sorted out from maybe the overall organization. So if you imagine a community, you could have lots of different circles, and these different circles have got been joined by people who see their their interest in a particular domain. And they maintain their own members, they figure out the functions and how they'll measure how they're doing on the functions that their circle is, and they'll maintain their own kind of memory system. They'll they'll document decisions and policies they're making. And in lots of organizations, you might say, oh, is that the same as a working group? Well, yes, it has divisions, working groups, teams, committees, associations, departments. They're all similar to that. Circles can function by doing things themselves and measuring themselves. So they have this semi-autonomous positioning within the organization. So they can range as domains from very general domains to quite specific. And the next bit is the bit that is different 
from hierarchical systems that have committees, teams, departments. Because in those systems, while you might have a department, you can draw a organizational diagram where you have the hierarchy, where you can see these people report to these people who have authority over those people and all the way up to whatever level or whatever name is put on the people in the top level of that hierarchy. In a sociocratic system, what you have instead is a way of linking all of the circles together. And for me, that was maybe what drew me to it, what I found interesting and exciting about sociocracy was this way of linking between circles. All of the circles are linked not just in what they call one direction. All circles are linked in two directions, meaning that one full member of one particular circle and one full member of another circle are linked to each other. And each of those are always linked to what's called the next most general circle. And what you have then is, if you can imagine, you might end up having the most general circle eventually that has the broadest view, and it will have double links coming into it from lots of circles. And some of those circles will have double links to more specific circles. So you get down to these maybe very specific circles working some more narrow domains coming up to the next most general. An example of that could be a village that has a general village council or circle. Then out from that, you could have a farm circle that was associated with all of the food production that is associated with this village. Then from there, you might have another more specific circle where you have animal producers, or you could have gardens as one of the next circles. And then even within gardens, you could have large market gardens, but you might have a circle that has feed in from in that garden circle where you have a market garden, more specific circle where you have like allotment, more specific circle, maybe backyard production, more specific circle. All of those then link, double linked into the general garden circle. And then that general garden circle linked into the farm circle along with the animal producers. So what you begin to see is that then that farm circle is linked into the general village circle. And as you can begin to maybe imagine is that the different, how many times different circles meet, how they are operationalizing their policies, all gets constantly communicated by these flows of links. So what happens is that you start ensuring that information is moving in two directions between all circles and the, therefore there's an integrity of the information that's going through the double links, feedback travels throughout the structure of the organization. So if you were making a decision that seems a small decision in your domain about the policy that's going to support the seed saving in all of the gardens, and then down at the level of how will we do that in backyard growing, how will we do that in market gardening. And then that might feed all the way up to the, the general circle, and the general circle for the village or the farm gets fed in, and that might then impact. So something else that's going on in the village, maybe there's a 
visitor initiative, a tourism initiative, and there's a different group for that. And they get to hear about this really interesting seed saving project that's going on. And it's come out of a policy for a particular reason. So a policy might be being made that says we want to be focusing on more local production of all of our needs. And that policy could be getting agreed at the biggest general circle. And then that feeds down to if we've agreed that policy and we're all there. So all of the representatives across all of the circles are there to agree that. So nobody's ever imposing a policy they haven't had the opportunity to contribute to. So just to finish up on that, there are examples mainly at the organizational community level. A lot of eco-villages use sociocracy. The organization that I've been involved in is the International Permaculture Collaborative Laboratory, big long name, the Permaculture Collab. Like people who work in permaculture also very often very locally community focused, but at the same time they want to share information, practice, knowledge, education in a more bioregional or international way. And so this is a new organization trying to use, make really effective use of digital tools and online meetings and so on in order to foster that effectiveness and that collaboration. And so they adopted sociocracy and slowly but surely people are getting trained in it and learning all of the different tools within it, how elections happen, which are not voting, how values and principles are worked out in terms of checking that things are working, having a system to review and all this sort of stuff. And the other one that I, I that uses it is similarly the International Transition Towns Movement, which is a network of hubs and people trying to relocalize their their systems. And they also use sociocracy. So there are some quite big organization uh, across the globe that are, are doing this. And although not sociocratic in, in specific ways, something similar to this is coming out of Rojava, which is a Kurdish autonomous region inside of the borders of Syria. And the people there would be very clear to say, we're not a state. We They don't really accept the notion of state, they've had to get permission to be autonomous and to self-govern from the Syrian state, but they have that. And they are innovating in ways that are very like this sociocratic model where they have local assemblies where people at the most local level can take the decisions in public services and all these sorts of things that affect them. And they have so neighborhood level assemblies right up to city assemblies and then their regional assembly. And again, everybody's represented all the way up through. And they're, they're also of interest. There's a lot of documentaries about them because they have made a kind of feminist democracy is what they're calling it. And they've also been influenced by uh, a writer in the States who wrote for many, many years called Murray Bookchin. I'll put some links to these in the listen notes. I was recently pointed towards Murray Bookchin and because of the way that I talk about ecological adaptations and their application to 
our social systems because what he coined, and I probably am of a lineage of influence from Murray Bookchin, was the idea of social ecology, the idea that the systems of the world that we choose have an effect on people and justice, on equity, and on the environment in exactly the similar ways. And so he wanted to align social movements for change with ecological movements, and that didn't really happen. And there was a kind of long-term split between social change movements and environmental change movements, as if the two were not connected. And in some ways, that plays out in a legacy of polarization in all sorts of areas, including in in Ireland, in, in agriculture, where those that might have wanted to talk about fairness and distribution and good pricing and, you know, the systems of capitalism that affect their production on the level of the farm and the accrual of wealth and the extraction of wealth into the big agricultural chemical companies, all these kinds of things. It's hard to have those conversations that also then have a conversation about environment because of these historical divisions as if a farmer on the ground is not pro looking after the biodiversity or whatever it is. And that the forcing of intensification is actually coming from this big system picture and that same big system picture that might be affecting environmental degradation and soil health and so on is at the same time the same system that is affecting social degradation and the coming apart of communities. So hopefully some of what I've talked about in this episode begins to point you, if you're interested, into alternatives that are already in the world and perhaps bridges back to something more harmonious for people all of nature that we are part of.